right, we have a great audience, a lot of good conversation. I'm excited to get into the Doctrine and Covenants and talk about the Whitmers today and the three witnesses. Yeah, and I'm interested in talking a little bit about uh, specifically in 15 and 16 where God kind of tailors his individual blessings to the, the needs and circumstances of the people whom he's blessing. We have three individuals here that the Lord is talking to that are very similar in some ways, but we're mm-hmm. going to see a lot of individual things for them as well. Yep. Uh, so welcome. Before we get into our discussion, maybe we can follow up on what we read. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So today we are in Doctrine and Covenants 14 through 17. In these sections, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery finished the translation of the Book of Mormon at the Whitmer home. Joseph is going to receive revelations for David, John, and Peter Whitmer, and he's going to receive information regarding their duties and, of course, share it with them. Then in section 17, three witnesses of the Book of Mormon are designated and they are told that they can see what they see through faith. Now, there's a lot of different things that we can talk about in these sections, but we're going to focus in on two things in particular. The first is what it means to stand as a witness, specifically in the context of the Whitmers as well as in our own lives, and also how God blesses us individually in accordance with our circumstances. So in order to help us really dive deep into these scriptures and understand them better, we have invited our wonderful friend, Casey Griffiths, to the show. Casey, would you join us up here? Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for coming. So Casey Griffiths is an assistant teaching professor at Brigham Young University. His expertise is in the Doctrine and Covenants and early Latter-day Saint history. Uh, You co-wrote the book, The 100 Most Important Events in Church History, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. Great. So welcome. We're looking forward to your expertise. Tell us a little bit about what stood out to you in these sections. Anything that was really impressionable or significant for you? One of the challenges of studying the Doctrine and Covenants is the Doctrine and Covenants has this kind of episodic format, where in the Book of Mormon you have a unified story. You have an editor that's overseeing everything and putting it all together. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it's like you're dropping in to a different story every day. And uh, one of the easy ways to kind of keep straight the, the people in the Doctrine and Covenants is that in this early phase, the church is really just three families. Uh, there's the Smiths, obviously Joseph's family, who are incredibly supportive. And then there's the Knight family, who live near and around where Emma Smith grows up. And then there's the Whitmer family, who live in Fayette, New York. And at this point, the church really is just these three families and then a couple of fun uncles like Martin Harris that drop in from time to time. And so almost every revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants that you read up to about section 30 is either given to a Smith or a Knight or a Whitmer. The Savior calls them a little flock several times in the Revelations because we're really talking about a couple dozen people tops. And the Whitmers are, are one of those real central groups uh, that, that a lot of the history from this time revolves around. Let me tell you what I understand about the historical context and you can kind of fill in the blanks if I miss something. So at this time, beginning in 14, Joseph is translating and he's facing uh, opposition in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Uh, so Oliver, who's helping Joseph, he reaches out to David Whitmer to see if they could translate at his house, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Uh, so David welcomes them into his home. He offers them some support. And then he and the Whitmer brothers, they ask Joseph what role they might play in bringing forth God's work. And this is what these revelations are a response to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really a huge leap of faith on the part of the Whitmers for them to allow Joseph and Oliver to come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph and Oliver have to leave Harmony, Pennsylvania, where they've been translating because persecution has started to sort of rear its ugly head. And so the Whitmers don't know Joseph from Adam, but they do know Oliver. Mm-hmm. And Oliver basically writes a letter and asks the Whitmers if they can come there and finish the last part of translation of the Book of Mormon. And they take this leap of faith. In fact, several of the Whitmers later on talk about like their hesitance to, to bring 
kind of this, this huge thing into their home mm-hmm. and spiritual experiences that they have that convince them that it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Lord is speaking to the Whitmers even before uh, Joseph arrives at their home. And then mm-hmm. when he gets there and they, they gain this testimony that he's a prophet of God, it's understandable that they would say, well, what's the Lord's will for me? Yeah. And that's really what section 14, 15, and 16 are. It's where David Whitmer mm-hmm. and John Whitmer and Peter Whitmer all sit down and say, tell me what the Lord wants me to do. And this is almost like their patriarchal blessing. They're seeking the individual will of the Lord and it becomes mm-hmm. part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. So maybe we can jump right into the text here in section 14 to introduce our topic, which is standing as a witness. In verse eight, it says, and it shall come to pass that if you shall ask the Father in my name in faith, believing you shall receive the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance that you may stand as a witness of the things of which you shall both hear and see. So the question I have for you is, in what ways did the Whitmers stand as witnesses? And then what ways can we stand as witnesses? Well, in a a literal sense, everybody that you're reading about right here becomes one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. If you open your your copy of the Book of Mormon to the witnesses, the three witnesses are Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer. Now remember, Oliver and David are Whitmers. Mm -hmm. Oliver's married to Elizabeth Whitmer. Then if you look down below at the eight witnesses, almost every last name is Smith or Whitmer, with the exception of Hiram Page, who's a Whitmer brother-in-law again. Mm -hmm. So... In a literal sense, these people put their lives on the line, their property, uh, everything that they have to to bear witness of the work that Joseph Smith is engaged in and to testify that the Book of Mormon is a real scriptural record. And by the way, a lot of the history that we know about how the Book of Mormon was translated comes from this last month where people like David Whitmer and John Whitmer and even uh, Elizabeth Whitmer witnesses Joseph translating the Book of Mormon and they are uniform throughout their life in saying this was not a normal process. This wasn't a person who knew a language translating to a different language. This was a gift of the Spirit. And these people who know Joseph very well and see him in process all bear witness that this is something that couldn't have happened without the intervention of God. So based on what you know about David Whitmer and the Whitmer family, and just maybe in your own life, how can we stand as witnesses in different capacities? And does that look the same for all of us? To stand as a witness, uh, reading here in verse 8, it looks like a precursor to standing as a witness is seeking out personal spiritual experiences that we can stand as a witness of. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it says that if you shall ask the Father in my name and faith believing, receiving the Holy Ghost, um, then you can stand as a witness of the things that you both hear and see. And I think that in order to, ve- to develop a real passion for the gospel and a passion that can be evident to other people, we need to be proactive in seeking out spiritual experiences and encounters with God, mm-hmm. with personal revelation, so that our our testimony can have more substance to it. Yeah. And so that when we share the gospel in, in any in any measure, it's backed by actual experiences that we can yeah. uh, testify about. And I love that idea that the as you were as you were saying that I was thinking that a witness is more than a verbal declaration of truth, right? It's an it's an unbosoming of something that you're committed to, that you're convicted of. Peter, one of the brothers, once said, My beloved brethren, ever since I have been acquainted with the writings of God, I have viewed eternity with perfect confidence. Once he's made that connection with God, he will stand as a witness and he carries that witness with him to the grave, literally. And this idea of understanding who God is, and once you know that, being a witness of him, it doesn't, it doesn't require words. It's, it's the light in people's eyes. It's the manner in how they communicate. It's how they treat other people. You can't help but witness of God when you know God. 
Well, I think standing as a witness, I think that's something that I have said hundreds of times growing up in young woman, standing as a witness of God at all times and all things and all places. And I think not being afraid to share your testimony and to stand up for what you believe in and just being a witness of God. I'm wondering, do you think that standing the witness always has to take the form of kind of a verbal declaration of testimony or can it, can it look different ways? And the reason I ask is because if you were to look over the course of Jesus's life, he was often frustrating people's expectations of the Messiah. He's interacting with people in ways that people didn't expect him to. And it, this was part of his ministry. So I'm wondering, are there ways in which you personally have witnessed in ways that perhaps defies the norm or it's just, it, it isn't a traditional way to witness or maybe you're witnessing through a different media, art or social media or something like that? I mean, the second great commandment is to love thy neighbor. And I think by constantly looking out for other people and just being an example, and I think obviously sharing your testimony can be so powerful, but I think you can share your testimony without even saying words and just by loving people and just being that example. There's a great little clip phrase that says, live so that those who know you but do not know him will want to know him because they know you. I mean, I think, I think naturally, again, as, as people who are trying to live the covenants they have made with God, they do a lot of things that are, that are out of the norm for a lot of people. I think we do so naturally because we're trying to serve the Lord. And I'm a firm believer of the idea that each person is going to reach, has the potential to reach a person that maybe another, another person doesn't. So um, by nature of that fact, I think our witnessing is going, is going to look a little bit different. I've been blessed by other people standing as witnesses and having it kind of circle back to me. A couple of years ago, I went to a conference in Taiwan and we're riding on this tour bus and the tour guide decided to stop and get some betel nuts which I didn't know at the time are kind of a mild narcotic. And so they're just passing them back in the bus and I'm kind of like, when in Rome, you know? Yeah. And I was getting ready to stick one in my mouth when this Japanese guy who hardly spoke any English grabbed my hand and said, Mormon, no, eat. And so I called up to uh, the person in the front of the bus and said, is this some kind of drug? And the guy goes, yeah, it is. It'll give you a little buzz. And I go, oh, I think I'm not supposed to. Have this, and I, I spent the rest of the night with this, this young man from Japan and found out that he had spent some time in America and that he lived with a Latter-day Saint family and had just learned from their example what Latter-day Saints do and don't do. And because of their example to him here 7,000 miles away, he stopped me from doing something that might have compromised my values or hurt me. Yeah, excellent. So I think we have a, a video question from our at-home audience that relates to what we're, what we're talking about here. Hi, my name is Nick Meekum from Rexburg, Idaho. During this week's study, I gained a valuable testimony of the Whitmer family. The question that came to my mind, though, was how can I serve as a witness to help bring to pass the Lord's righteous purposes in my everyday life? I remember when, um, when I was in high school, there was a person who moved into our high school. So I was in high school in Oregon. And there weren't a lot of members of the church. And I remember this girl moved in. I had never seen her before. I didn't know anything about her. And I said to her, would you like to start going with us to seminary? And she looked at me and she said, well, yeah, but how did you know? And I said, well, you seem like somebody who would be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was a common thing that we heard. I, I can't tell you how many times I would have volleyball coaches or basketball coaches and they would say, that must be one of your friends that's a member of the church. And I'd say, yes, but I had tons of friends but somehow they could tell the difference. And I think it was partially the way we dressed, but most of it, they would say, it's the smile on their face, or it's the light in their eyes, or it's the way they treat people. When you have desire, true, sincere desire, burning desire in your heart, 
to be a witness of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. Sometimes you won't even know that you was a witness because uh, it's come natural and that every situation will, uh, you know, Heavenly Father provide the way and provide the situation when you can be, uh, you know, His instrument in His hand. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, and it just gets the idea that maybe the deepest aspect, the deepest element of our witnessing is the way in which truth has affected our souls, yeah. which is to say it's not a knowledge of what is true, it's how that truth has affected us and helped us become a better um, disciple. One of the things, too, is a, a change in a person's countenance. I remember this story that James E. Faust told. He was talking to the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kolek, and we have an agreement that we won't send any missionaries there, but we do have the BYU Center and BYU students, and um, Mayor Kolek basically said, so these kids aren't missionaries, right? And President Faust said, absolutely not. Mayor Kolek looked at him and said, well, what are you going to do about the light that's in their eyes? Just kind of suggesting the idea that just their presence, just their countenance, um, witnessed to the power of the gospel and the way that it changes people's hearts. Excellent. So this has been an excellent discussion about what it means to stand as a witness. Now maybe we can transition and talk a little bit more about how God blesses us um, individually in our lives according to our circumstances. In sections 15 and 16 specifically, the Lord says to the Whitmer brothers, blessed are you for this thing. And he continues to talk about how blessed they are for what they are going to do and what they've already done and asking the Lord. And one of the things they're going to do is we talked about, they're going to continue to be witnesses. We didn't talk about one of my all-time favorite witnesses and it's Mary Whitmer. So here's the picture of the Whitmer home. And so this is, this is the home of Mary and Peter Sr. They had five children, but now we have Oliver Cowdery and now we have Joseph and Emma that have moved in. And there's a lot of hustle and bustle going around. And you can imagine as Mary Whitmer in this very small home, she's getting a little bit overwhelmed perhaps. And one day in all of this overwhelming experience that she has, she actually goes outside and she says that the, that the stranger showed her a bundle of plates. So she is the first woman who is able to actually see these plates. And then the stranger promises that if she were patient and faithful in bearing her burden a little longer, she should be blessed. So this idea of being blessed for being a witness and this idea of being blessed for being patient and being blessed for being humble, these people, a lot was being required of them. Casey, can you, could you go into a 17, maybe section 17 a little bit more and talk about these witnesses? So it can be really interesting to study the lives of each of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses and kind of see how they held on to their witness regardless of what happened in their life. For instance, if we go first to Martin Harris, uh, Martin it leaves the church in 1838. And in 1870, he's actually found by a pair of missionaries. They go and visit him. He's in Kirtland, Ohio, taking care of the temple there. And they offer to pay for his train ticket to Utah. So he agrees to travel to Utah and he is given several public opportunities to bear his witness of the Book of Mormon, specifically of his witness experience where he saw the angel and the plates. Never denies his testimony and dies and is buried in the Clarkston Cemetery. Oliver Cowdery uh, is excommunicated from the church in 1838. He's very, very important in the early church, but he spends a decade from 1838 to 1848 outside of the church. He serves as a lawyer. He serves in a number of civic and public positions. He never denies his testimony. And finally, in 1848, he decides to come back to the church. So he shows up at the place where the church is organizing to send people west. Uh, the apostle Orson Hyde, who's there, recognizes him and invites him to come up to the stand. And several people in the audience record Oliver Cowdery's testimony, where he bears witness of the Book of Mormon, of the angel, and even talks about John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John, uh, giving 
giving him priesthood authority. Oliver, rather than traveling west, actually travels to Missouri to find the rest of the Whitmer family. And uh, unfortunately, Oliver's ill. Uh, two years after he rejoins the church, he passes away in Richmond, Missouri. We don't know exactly uh, where Oliver's grave is because the cemetery that he was buried in was washed out in a flood. But the church went back and in the early 20th century uh, placed a monument, a granite monument to the three witnesses near the place where we think Oliver was finally laid to rest. The last and maybe the most fascinating of the three is David Whitmer. David never rejoins the church. He's excommunicated in 1838 and he never comes back. He's very angry. Uh, he feels like he's mistreated, but he never denies his testimony of the Book of Mormon. He lives longer than any of the other witnesses and he's interviewed more than any of the other witnesses. David Whitmer never denies his testimony, but never comes back. And if you go to Richmond, Missouri, where David is buried, you can actually find his headstone. And on the headstone, chiseled in uh, into the stone, is the phrase, the record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal. So here's a person that has no reason uh, to uphold the gospel if it's not true, but he maintained his testimony to the end of his life. And those three together, together with the eight witnesses, none of whom ever deny their testimony either, are one of the strongest evidences we have that there were plates, that there was an angel, and that the Book of Mormon really is translated by the gift and power of God. Thank you, Casey. I, I want to add one more witness to, to this. And Doctrine and Covenants Section 17, where we just were, I think the most important witness of all is the witness of Jesus Christ. And, and talk about the blessing that we receive through the Book of Mormon. But Christ in verse, in verse 6 itself, he says, I'm referring to Joseph, and he has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him, and as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. Of this testimony, I love the statement by Bruce R. McConkie. He says, this is God's testimony of the Book of Mormon. In it, deity himself has laid his godhood on the line. Either the book is true or God ceases to be God. There neither is nor can be any more formal or powerful language known to man or God. How does knowing that Jesus Christ witnesses of the Book of Mormon help you desire to witness? Or what does that do to you knowing that he is? Yes. The first thing that came to mind for me was that the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. And I had never thought about it being something that he also bears testimony of. And so knowing that it is meant for us to have a witness of him, but also for him to kind of witness that everything in that book is true, that's very powerful because Christ is witnessing that the men who worked on it, the women that the book talks about, all those people are real people who had real spiritual experiences. And I think it's so valuable that Christ would be willing to bear testament of all those events and all the, the effort and the sacrifice that went into that book. Him vouching for it is like, is like a 10-star review for a book on Amazon. You know, it's just like <laughs> the right guy saying the right things and getting people to understand, like, I'm serious about this. I want you to take this seriously, and I want you to know that I love you. And so I created this with a bunch of people. It's not just me, but I made this for you so you could have a testament of me and that I can bear testimony of all of the things that these people have done. So I, I just think that's very powerful. Thank you so that's much. Su that's such a cool way to think about it. Like it's yeah. another testament of Jesus Christ in the sense that obviously it testifies of him. Yeah. But testimony of Jesus Christ can also be a possessive, which is to say 
it's his testimony, right? Yeah. And the, the truthfulness of it, yeah, that's cool. So one of the things that, that uh, jumped out to me, and this has less to do with what you were saying, but just more about the study of blessedness and being blessed to be a yeah. witness. In sections 15 and 16, you, his Lord is expressly essentially saying, hey, I know what you've been praying for. He says, many times you have desired of me to know that which would be of most worth unto you. And blessed are you for this. And this is the Lord's response. I say unto you that that thing which will be of most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Amen. And he says this twice in both 15 and 16. It seems like the Lord, to a certain degree, is trying to reframe how they understand blessedness. They're asking them, how can I assure my blessedness in your eyes? Which isn't a bad thing. He says, blessed are you for this. But at the same time, he's gently nudging them to say, you should understand your blessedness as contingent upon other people's blessedness. What is of most worth unto you is to go help other people find blessedness. And I really love this idea of the Lord wants us to understand our personal salvation as a collective endeavor. There is no I in heaven, so to speak, um, that to, to, to gain the blessings of eternity, we need to be lifting each other up collectively. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the beauties of, of all these witnesses. Every, every one of them sacrificed so much so that we would have the Book of Mormon here with us here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, including, of course, I'm, to say the obvious, but including, of course, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed everything. And I think that that's what Elder Maxwell talks about often when he's talking about we give our whole soul to Christ. And that's what it says in Omni. And now, my beloved brethren, I would that you should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of the redemption. Yea, come unto him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him. I think that that is what they are trying to do. They're in the process of learning how to give up their whole souls. And, and it's, it's a difficult process. But in giving up our souls and losing ourselves, we are finding ourselves. And helping other people, we are bringing other people. We're, it's, it's a whole process. There is, there is no eternal life, as it says in section 14, verse 7, right? There is no eternal life alone. It, it's impossible to happen. We, we can't do it. To, to finish up our discussion, Sister, I think you had a comment. Um, I made a connection between when Christ was teaching his original apostles during his mortal ministry mm-hmm. and um, Christ really had to teach them. No, that's what this is. That's what this is all about is me giving my life and you will eventually give your life. And just that idea of, of losing yourself, um, whether it be losing your actual mortal life or losing yourself in the ministry of, of God um, for his kingdom. Um, and I think of Elder Christopherson's talk from a while back when he said, there's more of us to find when we lose ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we lose ourselves in the in the service of God, then our soul becomes more substantive. Um, and there's therefore more of us to find because we're filled uh, more with the light of Christ. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what Suzanne was saying. Like, it sounds scary to say, oh yeah, you have to give up your whole life and sacrifice everything you have. Uh, but again, there is, there's a real fullness of joy involved in that emptying of ourselves for other people, I think. Okay, I'm gonna share just one more thing before we, before we finish this today. It's the invitation for all of us. So he's giving the invitation, the Lord is giving the invitation in a sense to, to David Whitmer here. But in verse eight, the Lord says, and it shall come to pass that if you should ask the Father in my name, in faith, believing you shall receive the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance, that you may stand as a witness of the things of which you shall both hear and see, and also that you may declare repentance unto this generation. The other witness is the Holy Ghost. And every single person has the same promise. Everyone who makes a covenant with the Lord, everyone who desires can receive, if they are willing to, that gift of the Holy Ghost, which allows us to have that stronger witness and bear testimony of those things that the Lord would have us bear testimony of. 
So again, an, uh, yet another witness. I mean, these, these sections are just full of witnesses and our responsibility to do so. And the Lord isn't let it, leaving us by ourselves to do so. The Holy Ghost, we may not convince somebody of, of anything, but the Holy Ghost is the convincer. The Holy Ghost is the true witness that people need to have in, in order to know that these things are true. So this has been uh, an excellent discussion on blessing and witnessing, and specifically as we focus on these uh, verses where the Lord tells the Whitmers, you know, blessed are you for this thing. Yeah, I just appreciate the Lord saying, blessed are you for this thing. And, and all of you, um, all of us, I hope, will be able to receive that blessing as we try to bear our witnesses. Thank you so much, Casey. Thanks for teaching us about these witnesses specifically. Mm. Thanks for guiding us through sections 14 through 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's been fantastic to have you here. Yeah. So thank, thank you. you. And we'd like to thank you, of course, our, our audience. You guys are wonderful. Thanks for your thoughts and your comments your questions and your insights, and also uh, your witnesses. Without even saying words, sometimes we can see the witness in, in your countenance and who you are. And for those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you sent to us via social media. Uh, we'd love to see you in the studio sometime, but if you can't join us, we hope you'll tune in next week for a Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.